0: So welcome to another installment of Ars Technica Live. I'm Anna Lee Newitz, I'm the editor-at-large at Ars Technica, and I have Brad DeLong here with me, who I will introduce a bit more in a second. Hi. Hi. Um, you've already heard Brad speak in Latin, so you know how impressive he is. Um, he's an economics professor at Berkeley, he's also a prolific b- blogger, um, he's a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He's a fellow at the Institute for New Economic Thinking, and he also served in the Treasury uh, during the Clinton administration. So he's worked in government, and if you have any questions about NAFTA, he worked on NAFTA. So yes. thanks for that. Um, that helped okay. a friend of mine uh, yes, get David here. Yes, David
1: Graeber wants me to put on trial, for, be on trial for crimes against humanity.
0: Well, it helped a lot of my friends make it to the United States, so thanks. Okay,
1: All right. <laughs> uh, Yeah, yes. no, we'll,
0: we'll put you on trial. Um, Brad is also an expert in technological and industrial revolutions and social democracy, which is why I brought him here today and why I have so many questions for him. And I'm sure that you guys will have questions for him, too, during the Q&A. So just for those of you who haven't been here before, uh, Ars Technica Live is a monthly series here at Eli's Mile High Club, uh, which they've generously let us have the series here. It's always the second Wednesday of the month. Um, so come back if you like this, uh, buy lots of food, buy lots of beer, tip your bartender. Remember, Eli's is letting us be here. So let's be nice guests. Um, Yay. Yeah. All right. So I just want to start by, I love to start by defining terms. So I, I'd i love to hear how you would define the tech boom. Because we talk about the tech boom a lot, especially here in the Bay Area, and there seems to be this kind of ambient sense of what it means, which is a kind of smushed together blob of economic exuberance and technological innovation. And I'm just curious, what what's really the mechanism here? Why does... Why, why does technological innovation always lead to economic exuberance? Is this, is this a misnomer? What, what's going on? What is really um, happening?
1: Well, a bunch of people think they have good ideas about how to do new or almost new things. And a bunch more people have money and want lots more money than they currently have. Um, and as long as there's some divergence of opinion about whether it's actually going to work or not, um, well, there'll be some people with money who want to commit it because they're enthusiastic and optimistic, and there'll be lots of people with ideas, and there'll be some people who say, no, it's not going to work at all, um, but it's like very difficult to short things. Um, so you have canal booms, the one which peaked in 1825 and was followed by a collapse that carried down not just the canal sector, but the textile sector in England in 1825 as well, and led economist Jean-Baptiste Say to become an apostate against his own Say's law, and say, yes, financial crises, panics, and depressions are possible at all. We had railroad booms. We had the foreign investment boom, of which the most famous was the mythical country of Poyer, which issued bonds which issued bonds to a person named Gregor McGregor who claimed to be the financial institute um agent of the of the culture um, the country of Poyer the non-existent country of Poyer Wait what year was and this? who had ceded, who had seeded the London market by writing books about Poyer. When, and wait, them what put year? In the what British year? Tell, tell me what year this I happened. I forget what year it is. What century? Yeah. Give um, us a century. It's the ni- early 19th century, ah, right? Okay, it's that yeah, new I- South American republics are springing up all over the place as they revolt against Spain, and Poyer on the Mosquito Coast was one of them. And they actually issued bonds for a mythical country, and Gregor McGregor got away with the swag.
0: Wow, so is that kind of like hiring people based on, you know, giving them, um, you know... More like
1: Enron, I think. Is it
0: like is it Enron, Um, or is it like giving people stock in a company that hasn't gone public yet?
1: Um, Well, it's common to give people stock in a company that hasn't gone public yet. It's not so common to pretend that a country that doesn't exist exists. (laughs) (laughs) Although (laughs) Enron, Enron sounds like it could happen. That deals and financial flows from future investments and securities that do not exist in fact exist and are booked to market. And we get Paul Krugman to write friendly things about our company by hiring a bunch of people to come into an empty office and look to be furiously working hard, staring at Bloomberg terminals, typing it on the phone when Paul Krugman <laughs> walks past.
0: Um, so do you that think that In general, in okay. general,
1: a boom is anytime there are ideas and money and nobody really understands what's going on, but a lot of people see a lot of castles in the air And, you know, sometimes the castles in the air will turn out to be fair. My freshman roommate, Andre Schleifer, made a lot of fun of the tech boom in 1998 and 1999. You know, obviously overpriced companies that could not possibly return anything like their current stock price valuations. And if I remember the piece correctly, he correctly named nine companies that were going to go catastrophically bust in 2001. And then his tenth was eBay, <laughs> which is still around and is the central place if you have something weird to sell. Or if you are a small scale textile worker in Pakistan and want, are willing to custom make saris and salwar kameezes for first world customers. Because then you sell things you haven't yet sown on eBay and then ship them off.
0: So I'm curious about the connection between tech innovation, or what we will generously refer to as innovation, um, and what its relationship is to economic prosperity, economic boom. I mean, are there counterexamples? Are there times in history when we've had incredible an incredible technological advancement or industrial advancement where the market was like, eh, I don't care.
1: Um, I don't care, well. Or
0: where there was no accompanying kind of economic, um, booms and busts.
1: Anytime there's something big going on, there'll be some people who'll bet that there's a way to make money of it and they will be able to figure out how. Mm-hmm. Um, Like if you go back and if you read John Kenneth Galbraith's story about the Great Crash, about 1929, the thing that everyone is incredibly excited about in 1927, 1928, and 1929 is RCA, called radio. um, The Radio Corporation of America. Um, That is, the U.S. Navy had seized the radio patents from Marconi during World War I on the grounds that he was an enemy alien, or so I believe the story is, and then essentially open sourced them. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: all kinds of people were trying to make money out of radio in the 1920s, and Radio Corporation of America, RCA, thought it had a good strategy. It was going to um, make high-quality radios, so you could listen to shows and music in high fidelity and charge a premium price, kind of be the Apple of radios. Other people would have these crappy Android or Google or Samsung or Windows radios, and we'd have an Apple radio, and we'd make lots of money by selling a premium price to early adopters and people who wanted to be cool, um, kind of fanboys who fell to the reality distortion field. And though its price went up and down and up and down and up and up some more, and you know, the Wall Street Journal headlines about radio breaks new highs... um, Unfortunately, making a good radio is not that hard. Um, making an almost as good radio as RCA could make was pretty easy and pretty cheap. Um, that the real money was in selling the ears of the listeners to advertisers and in paying the talent, the musical and the um, kind of, I'm looking for the counterpart word to <laughs> musical to describe drama, the musical and dramatic talent to produce something worth listening to so people wouldn't change the channel when the commercial came on. Mm-hmm. And so the long run money was made not by the investors in RCA, but instead of Bill Paley, the establisher of the Columbia Broadcasting System of CBS. Mm-hmm. And all the people who followed him into the business of let's give people away something they want away for free and turn them in the product by selling their ears to others. By selling their ears to some people who want to sell them things they'll be happy of that they bought. By selling their ears to other people who will sell them things that will make them unhappy that they'll wish they hadn't bought. And by selling their ears to a third bunch of people who will hack their brains in unfortunate ways. Um, Footnote. The rise of Hitler, his dominance over German radio, his sudden appearance, the attempt of Franz von Papen and others uh, by serving as his vice president to control him. Their failure, Franz von Papen's flight to Turkey or to Austria first and then Turkey just after the speechwriter who'd written a stirring defense of free speech for him for a speech was assassinated on the Night of the Long Knives and World War II.
0: Right. Um, and, and of course, FDR took advantage of the radio. And well. FDR His took advantage, too. Fireside yes. were, chats were famous. Yes, yes.
1: My great uncles, when their old age, would still fulminate as they ate lobster outside the old family farmhouse in Maine that was originally acquired when someone shot the local Indian chief in the back. About how that communist Roosevelt was able to use the radio. <laughs> um, in such a way as to pull the wool over people's eyes.
0: That's a good American story. It's a good um, American story. Yeah. <laughs> so. And, and probably yeah, was it probably wasn't. It probably wasn't
1: a relative who shot the local Indian chief in the back. It was probably somebody else. Some um, other white dude. Yes. Um. um
0: so. Uh, something about that story that you were telling about the radio sounded kind of familiar near, to me. Yes. Um, yes. So yes. I guess so. When we think about tech technological revolutions or industrial revolutions Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, we could bring it back to the 19th century We could bring it back to the early 20th century with radio. Do you see some patterns emerging in terms of the kinds of um, effects on the democratic process? I mean
1: lots of things happen lots of things become possible lots of things that were say necessities become things that we don't really think about at all Uh Um, that it's certainly true that in this world today with seven and a half billion people and the enormous technological powers we have, there are still 500 million people who aren't sure where their 2,000 calories next week are coming from and a billion who really have some worry about where their 2,000 calories a day the next year are coming from and that's an absolute shocking scandal and atrocity and should be a source of shame to every person who doesn't worry about where their 2,000 calories are going to come from next week or next year. Um, But it's still an amazingly rich world, something that was the principal concern of humanity for, you know, ever since we learned to talk up until 1800, where are the calories coming from next week, is now something we're almost all confident we don't have to worry about. You know, necessities become, parts become things that are as common as air. You know, conveniences become necessities. Luxuries become conveniences. And we invent strange new luxuries that would be incomprehensible to anyone previous. And things that are the domain of kings um, become common. You know, that if it's 1604, And if you're sitting at home at night, and suppose you want to see a really scary and um, bloody play, um, dramatic presentation about something awful happening. um, (laughs) Well, you better hope that you're named James Stewart, that you're king of England and Scotland, that you have William Shakespeare on retainer, and that his company has Macbeth currently in repertory. If not, you're out of luck. (laughs) Um, Now, kind of people's teenage children sigh and say, Macbeth! (laughs) Why aren't we watching Macbeth? um, Why don't we watch something more interesting? Mm -hmm. That in 1000 BC, if you wanted um, to kind of see here a long story, um, a long, bloody story about over testosteronized men killing each other um, for small stakes at high mortality. You'd better have someone, you'd better have someone who knows um, Homer's, uh, Homer's Iliad around. Um, and if you're bored with that, you better have someone who has produced the Iliad fanfic that is the wanderings of Odysseus. <laughs> um, and a thousand years later, you actually have the first piece of fanfic commissioned when the Emperor of Augustus commissions the Aeneid, saying, I want more Iliad fanfic, like the Odyssey, but it has to somehow involve Rome, and it has to praise me as the end point of history. So
0: Augustus is like the first Mary Sue, basically, yeah. (laughs) Yes. Sorry, that was a fanfic joke. All right, sounds good.
1: Um, so
0: what about? I mean, what about this pattern that you were kind of identifying earlier with? Um, you know, the rise of essentially propaganda on the yeah, radio, which is yeah, which does yeah. which is contingent on a kind
1: well, of tech. Our boom. brains and our societies being hacked in different ways, you know, that say, you know, we have kind of one language family extending, well now extending pretty much everywhere. Um, but things like cultures that have something like "locks" as a word for fish. Mm -hmm. Um, The entire Indo-European language family, right? From central India all the way over to Ireland, jumping across the ocean, the colonies becoming at least currently the world's major second language. Um, Even some signs showing up in China. Um, Looks like some people domesticated the horse. Um, looks like some people no longer had to rely on the strong backs and legs to get the heavy lifting done, but instead could use the horse to do it. And you know this wasn't a bad thing, um, the fact that you no longer needed someone whose body was optimized for massive thigh and butt muscles, um, to move (laughs) things around that you could do a horse instead, it didn't mean that men became obsolete even in spite of their even leaving their reproductive role besides, because every horse needs a microcontroller, right? Um, and the best microcontroller around in 3000 BC is a little wetware device that can fit in a shoebox and draws 50 watts of power, um, one of which every one of us has, and one of which about half of us can grow in nine months um, with sufficient incentive and proper additions, <laughs> yeah, um,
0: <laughs> certain amount of yeah, chemical. But this reactions. also
1: deranges society. Um, that you seem to see, or at least the geneticists tell us, there seems to be something like high patriarchy, two thousand years in which rather than having the kind of one-to-one marriage ratio, in which there's polygyny and polygyny that persists across generations. That people claiming to be the sons of Hercules have more than one wife, and their children then have more than one wife, the and emperor so forth. The emperor
0: gets to have lots yes. of. Yes, yeah, so much friends. so
1: that yeah, that become one in seven Eurasian males having Genghis Khan's Y chromosome today. Um, that potential kinds of things some, um, the deranges society, um, and you also find incredibly weird things. Like a bunch of empires in which the upper class speaks um, an Indo-European language while the lower class speaks Aramaic or um, some other Semitic language located cheek by jowl between what's now Syria and what's now Iraq. You know, that society gets hacked by these technological innovations and hacked in interesting ways and sometimes not so pleasant ways. You know, and This process continues. You can say that the domestication of the horse... Uh, all of a sudden makes heavy lifting no longer a value-added thing, but you need microcontrollers, and the human brain's the only one around. You can say the invention of textile machinery makes, means that um, nimble fingers are no longer as important a thing. You know, If you do go back to the Odyssey um, or to the Iliad and a woman appears, odds are she will be either bringing somebody food... Um, engaging in some kind of doubtfully consensual activity um, or, or at her loom or at her spindle. Um, you no longer need so many nimble fingers but you need more microprocessors. You also need humans to act as robots to fit into the production process the machines are creating like Metropolis uh, because face it, practically Everything that, um, most almost, everything that's now, now that Go has been solved, almost everything that seems to be a hard AI problem is someone that anyone with this wetware can learn to do pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. That's why we machine, train machine learning systems on human judgment. Um, Because things that are very hard for machines are easy for us, you know. So you have humans as microcontrollers, humans as robots we don't yet know how to build, humans as paper shufflers. Do you qualify for this benefit? Um, Is this banknote counterfeit or not? Mm -hmm.
0: Data entry. Yeah,
1: data entry. And all of these things produce huge numbers of jobs for humans as microprocessors um, and robots and as bots, as software bots, as people doing information processing tasks. And so employment booms, and wages rise, and things are happy. um, Except when something goes wrong and it hacks society. Um, Earlier today on Twitter, um, my friend, I think, my social democratic friend, Matthew Iglesias, was arguing with my libertarian friend, I think it was Alex Tabarak, with Alex saying, how many of the criticisms of Facebook still make sense if you replace Facebook with printing press? And Matt's response was the invention of printing press unleashed religious sectarianism in Europe and led to one century of near genocidal fratricidal war, um, right? <laughs> that lots of people's brains were hacked by the ability to read the holy book themselves because it could be printed and now cheap, rather than have to listen to what the bishops and the priests said uh, that it said. Um, and of course, now we face the perhaps genuine problem that you know, we now have an awful lot of microcontrollers that are not you know, um, wetware that fits in half a shoebox and draws 50 watts of power. You know, the Scharfenberger Chocolate Factory does not have many workers on its assembly line floor. And more and more of the kind of white-collar paper shuffling jobs. Well, maybe the jobs aren't under threat, but large components of them are. The the number of people doing the jobs will shrink. And the people who remain will be those who know how to code in Python Mm -hmm. or whatever.
0: And they replaced 20 people who were doing that job previously. On the other
1: hand, do we really miss the fact that in 1970, we had a million women at telephone switchboards um, plugging cables into boards to make circuits?
0: I mean, I think it's less of a question of whether Mm -hmm. we miss it and Mm -hmm. more a question of what happens to us during this period of transition. Our brains are being hacked, Mm -hmm. and I think it's legit for people to be worried that their jobs are being yeah. turned over to robots. I mean, yeah. they are literally being. I, yeah. mean, I, I love your image of humans being robots in these industrial factories, yeah. and that there was a kind of dream that eventually, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could just replace them with robots? And yeah. uh, and now we kind of have. I mean, if you, yes. if you look at, there's and some seductive of, videos online yes. of like Amazon's uh, factory, or not Amazon, but Amazon right. fulfillment centers where they just have robots driving around and packing trucks. Um, Mm -hmm. because the robots
1: don't complain when it gets to be 100 degrees inside and you know
0: just like RoboCop you know they don't go on strike um, so that turned out well you guys remember that in RoboCop the reason that they invent RoboCop is because the cops are going on Uh strike Um, so yeah it's actually it's a great movie you should check rewatch it (laughs) Um, it's a really interesting um, commentary Mm -hmm. on this exact question that we're talking about so I think my question is it sounds like you're saying that there is this pattern that we see, especially in more recent um, sort of modern era industrial revolutions. And by modern, I mean like pretty much everything after the
1: feudal period. I don't know. I um, would call the horse, the chariot, the rise of patriarchy. Okay, hierarchy. fine. Everything
0: after the... Pharaoh,
1: b- Pharaoh with his chariots and his chariot So would drivers, you go for
0: anything you know? after the Bronze Age? Okay. Let's just Let's go with Bronze Age as the first... That we kind could of also Pharaoh, go back to the ceramic Pharaoh doesn't even revolution. have the ability
1: to chase after the Israelites without the domestication of the horse and chariot and the bow and arrow. Um, there's kind of no problem for Exodus to solve. You simply just get up and leave. You know, you don't have to deploy the might of okay, YHWH. So bringing
0: it, bringing um, it back up another 3,000 years. And one
1: thing I've wondered, um, always wondered... Passover dinner is supposed to be something you can pull together in half an hour because you've got a flea.
0: I mean, why do people spend
1: six hours cooking no. it no. if it's supposed to be it's just not, the food that it's you can- It's only yes.
0: the matzah that you pull together really quickly. No, no, Yeah, no. dude, the rest when, of it is just symbolic, okay? It's just you're symbolizing like when sadness Y-H, and like, When
1: YHWH says it's time to boogie. He says you eat it with the staff in your hand, your yeah, loins girt in haste. Yeah, he's only
0: talking about the matzah, which doesn't no, have time it's to the rise. No, it's the lamb, too, right? He's mm-hmm. not talking about brisket and all the, the other stuff. You've got to eat the lamb raw, right?
1: <laughs> or nearly raw. You just have half an no, hour. No, that
0: is not that no? is not what the Passover dinner means. Okay. Um, no. Um, oh. We'll talk about this more later. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> But uh, but so bringing it back to yeah. to the present and and people's mm-hmm. anxieties about being replaced by algorithms and robots and bots. Yeah. What a, looking back on this history all the way from the the matza uh, situation. Um, mm-hmm. What do we know about what happens to people who go through these changes and who do see their jobs being taken away by technological innovations? Like what. Do new jobs come to replace them? Is there is is it inevitable that we have some kind of class war and the rise of fascism? Like what 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 do we know? Do from Do they history? live in
1: modern day Germany or in the United States?
0: Well, I'm talking about today. So okay. what can we learn about history?
1: If they live in modern day Germany. Um, That is, after World War II, while the US was occupying Germany, a bunch of do-good, socialist, semi-socialist, ex-communist, communist communist New Dealers, thinking it was wise to get out of the United States, as the Cold War built, wound up in Germany running the German reconstruction effort. Um, And they inflicted upon Germany this institution called co-determination, by which the investors elect half of the members of the firm's supervisory board and the workers elect the other half. Um, now, this avoids the problem of the Yugoslavian worker-managed firm. Right? The old Yugoslavian worker-managed firm had the workers sharing the profits, which meant that whenever demand went up, the workers wouldn't hire anybody. Because the fewer workers, the more your share of the profits. Hence, just when demand for your product goes up, that's just when you don't want to replace anyone who quits. And so the Yugoslavian worker managed firm, the supply curve sloped the wrong way. Instead of supply increasing when the price went up, supply went down um, when the price went up, which was one of the problems with Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. Um, But German co-determination manages to avoid that. And if your job is robotized in Germany, you overwhelmingly stay with the same firm. Not in a manufacturing job, but they retrain you and find something else. Um, For you to do You know in the United States where instead of co-determination we had the Taft-Hartley Act Um, Not so good Right that losing your job due to automation um, It's not horrible because losing your job to automation generally means that the income is staying in the community and so there will be other jobs probably not as high paying Probably not as suited to your skills, Um, unless globalization strikes and makes your whole division—the whole your whole pardon—the division of labor vanish. um, You'll do okay. People who lose their jobs due to automation, it looks like their incomes over the next 20 years are perhaps 10 percent lower than they would be otherwise, which is a hit but not the catastrophic hit that's the 30% loss of income if you lost your job in, 2009, in 2008 and 2009 due to the financial crisis recession. Right.
0: What does that look like um, though when you say it, the money stays within the community and so you, you still have an okay salary? Like does that mean it's like I used to work on an assembly line and now what, what do to I work do now? You used to work on
1: an assembly line and you used to pull down $25 an hour for a job that was quite boring and that you could only stand doing if you smoked an awful lot of weed on the job. Sounds Um, like my job now. I mean, except that I like my job. I like my job. She she likes her job. She likes her job. (laughs) I don't lose any fingers. She is a dedicated worker, enthusiastic worker. Um, every day she rises up and says, how is it that we can make Ars Technica more interesting and more fascinating
0: so we can sell the
1: eyeballs of our viewers to more companies that will sell them things they will genuinely be pleased to buy rather than sell their eyeballs to companies that will sell them fake diabetes cures and overpriced gold funds and other things they won't want to buy. Um, or will hack their brain to vote for some neo-fascist um, in some way or other. Or even worse, become a nimbyist opponent of further development in greater San Francisco so that anyone who moves here has to live 45 minutes beyond Altamont and commute um, for three hours a day.
0: You know? Okay, I just got deconstructed. Thanks.
1: Okay, <laughs> Mm -hmm.
0: So uh, now that I've been sort of historicized and placed in the context of (laughs) of my economic and and social relations, um, to return to this person, this imaginary person that we're talking about uh, who has a a job that is clearly being currently replaced Um, by automation, like my job, which will be replaced by automation maybe in the future. I don't know. I've had someone
1: from Pearson Publishing come by today saying how would I like to be part of an experiment about using a machine learning system to grade essays.
0: Yeah, I mean, so you and I are both going to be in that that
1: I was ranting about how um, say Berkeley's class sizes are growing and our teaching fellow coverage is shrinking. And the amount we pay our teaching fellows is not growing, and so there's a great desire to reduce their grading load. And of course, that means more multiple choice questions and fewer essays. And yet, in fact, one of the biggest soft skills Berkeley has to teach is effective communicative literacy in prose. That no one out there in the real world has a job that involves doing multiple choice questions. Unless perhaps you get a job writing um, copy for someone who wants to run something on SurveyMonkey. All I can say is that when that I was a grad jobs. student at
0: Berkeley, and I was um, yeah. I was a what was called a reader, mm-hmm. which meant I graded written exams, not multiple choice. And, and got we would have half to grade, as
1: much as a section. We would get
0: got. yeah, yes. like a thousand bucks a semester, and we would have to grade like two hundred exams over a period of forty eight hours. Um, so we were doing our yeah. like, level best yeah. Um, yeah. to to dispense mm-hmm. grades from the from mm-hmm. the education machine. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so what so then I guess. Here's a a better question, maybe, is well, what happens to the future version of Brad DeLong after you are replaced by algorithms? So, what kind of a job would you? What would future Brad do? Like, what kind
1: of a job?
0: Like, when when people like us have been replaced by automation, what what new jobs appear, or do we just
1: that? Always in the past, we've been able to rely on. a growing economy and a richer economy producing more, call it information sector, you no know, paper shuffling or information dissemination jobs on the one hand, that people as software communicative bots contributing to the great anthology intelligence that is the human race and has been the human race ever since we first learned to talk. You know, and all of a sudden what one person knew You know, pretty much everyone knew pretty quickly, right? Um, That, you know, Una went down to the waterhole at dusk and the leopard got her. Stay away from the waterhole at dusk, type of thing. Um, You know, um, fog went up on the top of the hill during a thunderstorm. And you won't believe it, but this absolutely huge hammer came out of the sky and squashed (laughs) him flat. Um, We're going to call this hammer Thor. because we person we we have a natural tendency to personify everything mm-hmm. that after all, if you think that whatever you're dealing with has less intelligence than it has, it's probably bad, while thinking it has more intelligence than it has is probably not that harmful. Mm-hmm. And so once we personify the lightning and the thunder as some large red-haired giant with serious anger management problems, um, and this large hammer you wanna stay out of, you know, everyone knows don't go on top of the hill during a thunderstorm. And especially don't stand under a tree if that happens. How he acquires a strange brother who bears some relationship to fire and is played by Tim Hiddleston, I do not understand. Tom, Tom Hiddleston, yeah. What Tom Hiddleston? I yeah, no, do no, not it's, understand. It's an important... But, you know. <laughs> and indeed, that's that's a big part of our edge. You know, you can see this in the fact that we are um, compulsively unable to keep even the secrets we know we ought to. Um, that seems to be true of the human race at a deep level. Um no.
0: Um, we just want to share Yeah, and so a lot of
1: us, yeah, a lot of us are, have always been information sharers, and I think we'll always be information sharers, um, even in those days in which we have, you know, in which everything is online and when Mr. Google is 100 times as fast as Google currently is. The things that are going to go away are the humans as robots. You know, the assembly line jobs, tightening bolt number five on everything that comes down the line. And also a lot of the machine and animal microcontroller jobs. (laughs) The question is, do we then, are there then enough jobs that require human contact? Um, That is, I know, um, I could certainly use half an hour a day with a personal trainer, and probably half an hour a day with a dietician, would considering my metabolism, heredity, and habits be a good thing, Um, half an hour with a personal shopper, Um, you know, half an hour with an kind of Oprah culture made an equivalent, half an hour as what researchers made an equivalent, half an hour with a research assistant to tell me what things have appeared in the economy, in the economics literature that I should do. Um, figure six th- six things of personal contact at half an hour each, that's three hours a day of services, of personal services that I would want to purchase. And if you think the average workday is kind of six hours, that's half the labor force employed in just keeping all of us on task, you know. And no, the Apple Watches activity circles saying, come on, Brad, you can close your activity circles. Um, <laughs> that's probably not going to be a good enough substitute. Um, or if something it isn't. I does... Mean, there's there's yeah. studies that show yeah, it that Fitbit don't really is not yeah. working. Yeah. It
0: works for me, but not for very and many people. And that's even
1: without the people trapped in wellness programs who are hacking their Fitbits um, <laughs> in various ways. Um, you know. I love that. And Paul Krugman's view is that you know um, that a lot of our intelligence is indeed devoted to social community management skills. That to actually get a Artificial intelligence able to work at that level. You know, that AlphaGo has no idea it's playing Go. AlphaGo is solving a problem by which it outputs a two-state vector in response to a 19 by 19 matrix of inputs um, when the matrices of inputs have a sequential value function structure imposed on them. It's very good at that. It's learned how to do that extremely well. It has no idea that it's playing Go. Um, Something actually good enough to replace, they say, three hours of one on one human contact that I think I could use. Um, And maybe I couldn't, but if I couldn't use it, I should spend an hour a day with a shrink trying to convince my, trying to understand why I think I could. (laughs) <laughs> By the time you have something that can do that, you have a genuine Turing-class entity. And if you try to make Turing-class entities do your bidding without regard to their own interests, um, well, then Paul Krugman says you no longer have a society of abund- an abundant society of utopia. You have a society of robot slaves. That's right. Um, and then you'd better hope that... Um, it's late in his career, and Arnold Schwarzenegger gets to play the good guy helping the humans <laughs> rather than the bad guy killing them um, whenever that comes down. Yeah.
0: So I want to ask you one more thing, and then I'm going to open it up to folks for questions, and I'll kind of awkwardly stand over there with the mic. Um, so if, if you are desperate to ask Brad something, you might want to kind of work your way over here. Um, So, okay, this is a very big question, uh, but I'm still curious to know. Um, So we started out by talking about the tech boom and how that functions, and I think that the tech economy, we can all agree, is a fairly global economy. Mm -hmm. So how do you see uh, our current presidential administration's um, insistence on sort of protectionism and, you know, closing down um, international trade? How is that going to affect this tech boom at all? Are we just totally immune from it? Uh, or is that, are, are we seeing a genuine um, change?
1: Well, you know, the, what was it? Um,
0: Is it the apocalypse?
1: <laughs> it could be the apocalypse, right? That I don't know whether wow. the better analogy for Donald Trump is, you know, Charles II Stuart without the work ethic. Um, that is someone willing to say "All right, I'll take a lot of money from the king of France Um, and so derange British foreign policy to make it serve the interests of the French because Louis XIV is giving me money and I'll dangle in front of him the idea that maybe we'll re-Catholicize England and eliminate the Protestant church to get him to show the money, to show us the money Um, And otherwise that I'll have lots of mistresses and I'll make each of them a duchess and give each of them a county as opposed to a measly $100,000 that I actually never gave them and have no idea what my lawyer (laughs) thought he was doing when I did. Um, Now I really want to see this movie. Charles II, who's kind of the merry monarch, and there are various people trying to run a sensible policy around and behind and beside him You know, or whether it's Henry VIII, right? That, um, what did he do did he get? Um, you know, um, he got Thomas More. Um, he got Thomas Cromwell. Um, Did he kill any of his other chancellors? He was going to kill Cardinal Wolsey, but Cardinal Wolsey died first. (laughs) Um, so say, um, Let's, get, let's give him for Wolsey for, um, for effort, because he was clearly planning Yeah, for to. intent. So three chancellors, two wives. Um, God knows how long Jane Seymour would have lasted if she not died immediately after giving birth to a son. Um, war assigned a warrant for the arrest and torture of his sixth wife, Catherine Parr, which she managed to get out of. Uh, by amazingly quick emotional footnotional manipulation footwork. Um, The Spanish ambassador swears that he was responsible for the death of Catherine of Aragon by putting her in an unheated castle with insufficient firewood in the hopes that she would die quickly. Um, Anne Cleves, who managed to get herself out of his bed as fast as possible and declared to be the honorable king's sister is the only one who seems to have managed terribly well neither getting executed nor dying in childbirth nor confined to a drafty castle in the hopes that you'll die of some respiratory ailment nor in fact have a warrant for your arrest signed um, Rince Priebus is still wandering around free. <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> But on the other hand, he has nuclear weapons and he seems to have, you know, the, um, you know, there's a certain Henry VIII vibe. You know, not so, much, not so much a merry monarch as an angry person who's insufficiently respected. Um, you know, and, you know, chaos and kleptocracy are never good things. Right, which is why I really do not understand the mercers and the murdochs um because yes plutocrats like to plute um or maybe it's Pluto, I'm um, afraid right? it does come from what from the Roman god of wealth yep, yep, um, got a plute, yep, gotta plute. plutocrats <laughs> plutocrats got, got a plute. Gotta plute. um but you know in the long run chaos is not the friend of someone whose wealth really depends on the continuing function of a highly sophisticated 7.5 billion person global division of labor um, and as every single saudi arabian plutocrat has found out over the past six months while they've been involuntary guests at the ritz carlton in riyadh um, kleptocrats are not necessarily the friends of plutocrats either but maybe they got um, frequent stayer points. Um, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, the trade policy is you know, um, weird, right? They finally settled on a something that doesn't make total nonsense, which is that a lot of people in America would wish that China would pay more respect to our ideas about how much intellectual property Americans own and how much it's worth to be paid for it than to China's own beliefs about it, which is that it should get as much intellectual property out of the United States for as little money as possible by using access to the Chinese market as a big club to hold over the heads of every single company in the world. And the U.S. to say we have a functioning growing economy, yours not so much. You want a big share of the Chinese market in the future, you need to invest now, which means give us your intellectual property. And this is in violation of a number of solemn agreements that the Chinese government has signed about how it was going to play nice. The strategy to try to deal with this though was the Trans-Pacific Partnership by which we get everyone else around the Pacific to agree to a particular intellectual property regime. Um, and then once that's agreed to threaten China by saying, you know, we really don't need to move things from Malaysia to Korea within via China in order to do the assembly before we do the post assembly processing in Korea and the pre assembly processing in Malaysia. We could do it somewhere in Africa just as well, and unless you play nice um, by intellectual property, we'll do that. Um, He'll get everyone else together and confront China with a unified front on intellectual property issues. Yeah, but then he blew up the Trans-Pacific Partnership on day one and now is trying to negotiate with China with no allies over issues for which there was at least a negotiation strategy with the TPP. You know, that it was really quite weird. That, um, yeah, you know, I remember, oh, one of the black beasts of economics is Stephen Moore, um, advisor to the former governor of Kansas, Sam Brownback, um, during Kansas' dry run for last year's tax bill, the thing that caused the Kansas budget crisis, and the only governor under which a state, Kansas, has lost. of its workforce relative to the rest of the United States in just one and a half governor's terms. Um, And, you know, back in the old days, Stephen Moore was a big backer of the TPP and wrote fulsome articles praising the TPP and how bold and brave Michael Rubio was in voting to give Barack Obama authority to negotiate it. Um, Then I was on Trish Reagan's Fox Business Show, Um, After, of course, Trump becomes the presidential candidate, you know, and I go on there thinking that he's going to be for the TPP and I'm going to be the social democratic squish, right, saying we dropped more bombs on Vietnam in the Vietnam War than in all of World War II and now are we really going to make Vietnam pay this much through the nose? For access to frontier U.S.-made, U.S.-patented pharmaceuticals, and for Taylor Swift videos, <laughs> um, that's really not quite fair. That the TPP's intellectual property things are too hard, right? Are not in the world's long-run interest, and hence not in the U.S.'s long-run interest. Taylor Swift yeah? actually in that whole scenario? No, Taylor Swift is okay. just a meton. She's just okay. she's a wonderful person and an excellent singer. Um, but she's someone whom people will know, and she's worth pointing to as an example of the type of thing we want to charge Vietnam a lot you know, for. Um, you know, I actually like Taylor Swift quite a bit. You know, Me um, too. You know, I really last like her new week, video. Yeah, last what? <laughs> no, last week I did something. What was it? I got in the car, and for some reason I'd set up you know, Apple Music wrong. Um, and so I headed off and when I kind of came to my senses I realized I'd just driven from Berkeley to Walnut Creek and listened to Delicate six times <laughs> in succession without realizing
0: it's, um, you know, it's a catchy, it's a catchy know, tune. Um, but
1: no, they, they, Steve Moore goes out there and he says, well um, no, who knows what's in the Trans-Pacific Partnership it's 2,000 pages if it's a free trade agreement, why is it 2,000 pages we have no idea what's in it Well, actually, I do have an idea of what's in it. I'm a trained professional here. You, Steve, are supposed to be a trained professional, too. Just last year, you were saying you knew what was in it and that Marco Rubio was a hero for voting for it. Um, And then he went on to say, oh, in any way, China will break it. Um, Well, but yes, if China breaks it, then we have 11 allies to put pressure on China. That's the whole point, to be negotiating not one-on-one, but 12-to-one. And now I am told, I don't know whether the people telling this are reliable or not, that when they go around and appear at business groups, at which Steve Moore appears, he's now selling himself as the only free trader that Trump will listen to. Hence, if you want the interests of your business brought to Trump's attention, you better hire Steve Moore so he remembers about his issue. The next time he has a coffee or a dinner with Trump, you know, um, yeah, it's you know, um, Charles the Second Stuart, Henry the Eighth Tudor, um, yeah, Nero named, well Caligula actually did not name his horse a consul, as best as we can tell, that. It's very strange. Our sources for the Roman Empire seem to be an odd combination of you know, um, military authorities, kind of technocratic, people taking a technocratic view, um, the rich angry at anything that gives the rich less of a place, plus Star Magazine. hmm Right? Um, <laughs> no, yes, yeah, seriously, seriously. Someone like Procopius of Caesarea, right, say, I don't know how many, huge numbers of volumes about the wars of justinian and about the buildings of justinian all talking about how great justinian and his chief general belisarius is and then there's this extra thing this anecdota about how justinian is actually a monster and about his wife is worse um and the passage of such bizarre bizarreness that I'm going to tell you to look it up. It has something to do with five orifices. Um, <laughs> but I'm not going to repeat it on a family, <laughs> on a family internet channel. <laughs> yeah. And that someone swears that one night, um, Justinian, who's really a demon, forgot to put on his head as he left his chambers. And so he wandered around the palace talking to people. But instead of having a head, there were these flames issuing from his neck, and he spoke in a deep, sepulchral, demonic voice, Um, but didn't seem to understand that anything was wrong. Because, you know, he'd forgotten to put on his human guy's head, Um, as one does sometimes when one wakes up and is hungry and is wandering around one's palace (laughs) at night, if one is actually a demon. I mean, and Procopius does say that he did not see this personally, but he does say peop, holy people who he trusts attest that it happens, and it's completely deadpan. Um,
0: it seems that seems like a know. good way to wind up an answer about Trump's trade policy. <laughs> yes, indeed, it uh, is.
1: okay. I'm
0: gonna I'm gonna let a few. We're we're kind of running okay. over time here, but right. I'm still gonna let a few people ask questions because I know mm-hmm. they've been waiting, and I mm-hmm. deliberately asked a huge question because I'm yes. terrible. So. Okay, so I have a I have a question about the tech boom. And I'm I've been wondering wanting to ask you this for a long time. How much do you think the sort of ready availability of capital for you know tech companies, some of which have, shall we say, wishful revenue models, some of which are great investments, yeah. some of which have wishful yeah. revenue models? Yeah. How much is that just a product of 40 years of economic policies to concentrate wealth in the hands of a relatively small number of people who now have more capital than they know where to invest. Is that part of the what's going on here, or is it purely just that it's a legitimate enterprise and there's gonna be some outliers?
1: Yeah, there's, it's an odd and an interesting question, problem. That is, it really looks like there's a lot more money than there are available savings vehicles when you look at government bonds. Um, but when you look at stocks, that things seem to be not that unfair, not that, uh, not that highly overvalued. And in fact, the calculations that suggest that they are overvalued um they assume, they implicitly assume that there's going to be a 2009 every decade. Right? That if there's a bayer as bad as 2009 every decade, that's what Robert Schiller's calculations assume under the hood, and that's too large. There's a 2009 every 50 or 60 years or so. Um, what means it is that the willingness to bear risk and to take gambles is still very highly rewarded. Um, so there seems to be little sign yeah, that there's much too much money chasing too chasing risky things um now there's a difference between risky things and risky things where you cannot bet against them right that the housing bubble started to decline when people like paulson began saying everyone else was saying look how good money look how cheap money is let's build a thousand more houses in the desert between los angeles and albuquerque right um four bedrooms swimming pools give them a teaser rate for 5 years on the mortgage so it's actually a low rent thing with an option to buy and Sure enough, after five years, no one wants to live in a four-bedroom house with a swimming pool in the desert between um, San Bernardino and Albuquerque. Instead, they want higher-density walk-ups in Venice, California. And so the houses stand empty, and they depreciate rapidly as people rip out the copper pipes and West Nile virus breeds in the unheated and swimming pools and <laughs> so on and so forth. Um, and John Paulson's idea was, let's not build the houses. Let's just issue the securities as if we had— And let's just pocket the money, because this can't go on for very long. Um, And as soon as Paulson began doing this with Magnetar and similar things, um, the housing bubble began to cool off, and the pace at which we were building houses shrank to something more normal. Unfortunately, it didn't rescue us, but it calmed things down. Um, And... But you can't calm things down with a Silicon Valley boom, because there's no real way to bet against it. So that as a result, you're going to get an awful lot of people with more money than sense excited about the technologies and without any great idea about just how it is that the technologies are going to turn into a return on investment. Um, that indeed Google had absolutely no idea how technologies were going to produce a return on investment. And if they hadn't lucked into AdWords uh, and the double-sided AdWord auction created by former Berkeley economics professor and uh, former dean Hal Varian, um, they would still be in significant trouble that um, AdWords is profitable. What else of Google is profitable that we know of? YouTube. Probably by now. Yeah,
0: but and I mean YouTube is also ad driven. It's also like, ad driven. But it's yeah. a different. I mean thing there's a tiny search. bit of subscription model. Yeah, it's in there, a different
1: but. thing than search. You know, um, and indeed an awful lot of it is we'll build the technology and a revenue business model will emerge at some point in the future. You know, and this is probably a good thing for the world as a whole that one way to view the tech bubble of 1996 and 1999 was that the assembled billionaires of America spent, you know, um, four trillion dollars building dark fiber and experimenting with business models, and then it crashed and they lost their money. But we then had the dark fiber and so we had really cheap internet backbone for a decade which allowed us all to do a lot of things on the internet very cheaply. It was kind of a $4 trillion charitable deduction on their part that enriched all of us or enriched those of us who could afford broadband internet. Um, that even that the, that the fact that the investments in the bubble aren't profitable for the investors doesn't mean they aren't useful for society. That profitability equates to social uselessness only in the libertarian dreams of Paul Ryan and his.
0: Um we'll take a couple more questions. I know you've been standing here for a while, so:
1: What is the economic sense behind the Justinian senselessness that we see we continue to see on the media, for example, and is it related to this kind of tech boom senselessness or not? Is it a separate economic entity in and of itself? It seems to be fairly completely orthogonal right um, that is. I really do not understand um, why it is that Republicans fell in line behind Trump, other than they all assumed that Hillary would win. And they remembered the lesson of you know, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, You know that Richard Nixon had backed Goldwater. And so he got to be the next presidential nominee. And the Republicans who went in opposition to Goldwater as a step too far didn't. And Ronald Reagan backed Nixon even while Nixon was being impeached. And he became the next presidential nominee. While those Republicans like Howard Baker and others who said, you know, Nixon is just too criminal, um, (laughs) did not. Um, And they thought it was a cheap way to advance their future in the Republican Party without actually thinking of what um, would happen if he became president. And now they're stuck um, trying to figure out what to do when they know that they are faced with a base that regards themselves as more supporters of Trump than Republicans. Um, And we know what Paul Ryan's decision is. (laughs) It's to simply leave. You know, that the game of government is no longer worth playing. Um, I'm going to go back to Janesville and spend more time with my family Um, rather than do any kind of job of turn involved with American governance. Um, As you say, we can largely neutralize his domestic policies here in California and in other blue states, and people are doing so and doing so fairly successfully. He won't do a lot of damage um, in blue states. You know, those poor people in Kentucky, um, Alabama, Mississippi, Nebraska, um, the farmers of Iowa who now find themselves the position of Donald Trump saying the farmers will understand when I take their markets away in this trade war with China and perhaps the next trade war with Mexico, um, you know, one has to feel very sorry for them um, in a way one doesn't have to feel sorry for the Republican politicians. Um, and you know, we have to educate, uh, we have to teach, we have to speak um, calmly, but with only as much snark as is necessary to keep us so sane. Um, you know, um, we have to point out um, to lots of people that just as, you know, The Republican Party that Pete Wilson tried to create in California and did create um, is a minority party because it has very little temptation for Hispanics and less of an attraction for white men who are capable of embarrassment than a Republican Party should, um, ought to have in America today. Um, Hope to kind of make this a... um, the National Republican Party's Pete Wilson moment, and also hope to persuade Mike Pence that it's time for a 25th Amendment remedy, and also to persuade Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch that they really should start having Fox News say that Donald Trump gave it a good try, but he's a tired man who's not enjoying the job, we really should let him go play golf before the stress of the job gives him a stroke. And, and okay, we're, you know, if we're Fox way over time, that, so I
0: think, yeah, we're gonna. Um, thank you so much for, for being here.